One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ant Group, a giant Chinese fintech, is preparing for a record-busting IPO. Could it provide a glimpse of the future of finance? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, the president of the US Chamber of Commerce on how the election will reshape America, Inc. The question will be whether we're on offense or defense, depending on who's in the White House, who's in the Senate, and who's in the Congress. And delay to the new James Bond film deals a painful blow to the cinema industry. At the start of the pandemic, the difficulty for cinemas was persuading moviegoers that it was safe to go back to the auditorium. But the difficulty now is persuading studios to send their films. But first, in 2008... Jack Ma, a former teacher who founded e-commerce giant Alibaba, made headlines with an ultimatum. Lamenting how hard it was for small businesses to get loans, he warned, If the banks do not change, let's change the banks. Ant Group, a fintech spun off from Alibaba 10 years ago, has since helped establish China as the world leader in digital transactions, radically expanding access to credit and transforming how ordinary people manage their money. In the process, Ant has become a giant in its own right, with over a billion users. Ant's now approaching what is likely to be the world's biggest double IPO. You know, it could well be at the top three financial companies in the world more valuable um, than any bank in the world behind just Visa and MasterCard. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor based in Shanghai. It's plausible to think that within a few years, Ant may be the world's most valuable financial company. Wow. Well, I suppose the way most people know it still outside China is as a payments arm of Alibaba, as Alipay. Could you describe that business and put it in an international context? I mean, this is the genesis of Ant. It it did begin just as the payments function, basically, within Alibaba websites. And uh, it was basically an escrow account, a way for, you know, buyers to have their money sitting in account until they got their good and they were satisfied. They then created a mobile pay app. And it really began to take off in 2011 when they began to use QR codes. And that was really quite revolutionary for China because there had never been much in the way of a debit card or a credit card industry here. It was really entirely a cash-based society. And overnight, you know, it leapfrogged over, um, you know, the way things are done in the West and went entirely to this mobile pay type system. Alipay last year had roughly $17 trillion in, in total payment volumes. That, that's about 25 times the size of, of PayPal. Wow, again. So, so if, if payments are, are the way 
it gets customers. What does Ant do with them once it's got them? That's what begins to make it such an interesting company is, is that it's gone so far beyond its roots as a payments company. The biggest growth area, and which is now actually the biggest driver of, of its revenues, is lending. Ant realized fairly quickly that you know once you have all of this data and all of these users on the platform, you can do a lot with it. Basically, with, within the last seven years, They've worked up to 1.7 trillion RMB, which is about $300 billion in outstanding loans to consumers, about 400 billion RMB in outstanding loans to small businesses. You know, people here will say if you're lending to small businesses, it's it's typically quite risky and you, you sort of wait for their quarterly statements. You're never quite sure whether you can trust their numbers. Whereas with Ant, I mean, they're able to look at their cash flow on a daily basis. But is it lending itself off, it, off its own balance sheet or is it acting more as a kind of credit rating agency for other lenders? What its initial model had been was that it would extend the loans uh, and then it would package them into securities, which would then be uh, bought by banks. And this was a way for Ant to basically have a very asset-like model. Regulators stepped in because they were afraid that was potentially a dangerous model. There were sort of echoes of, you know, what led to the subprime crisis in the West. So Ant sort of reinvented its model. And now effectively, it's a conduit where it identifies the borrowers, it assesses their credit risk, and then it pairs them up with banks who through Ant will extend the loan. So besides payment and and credit, what other services does it offer? I mean, the next point is that, you know, once you have all of these people on your platform, you clearly have a a big, powerful position as a distributor. And Ant sort of stumbled into this. In 2013, 2014, they created a fund option for people who had money sitting in their Alipay accounts to invest in a money market fund. Within three years, this had become the world's biggest money market fund. It had, you know, assets under management of about 1.5 trillion RMB. So they've now partnered with multiple fund management companies. There's about 6,000 different uh, investment products from stock funds to fixed income funds uh, that you can buy via Ant. They've also started to partner with insurance companies. So you could buy, you know, a car insurance policy or a life insurance policy uh, on Ant. So it's the closest thing in the world to a sort of a fintech supermarket. Just to give you one example of the reach event, uh, you know, one of the people that I spoke to in, in researching this story was uh, Li Li, who's the deputy general manager for Invesco Great Wall Fund Management. It's a big fund management company in China. They began to sell money market funds on Ant two years ago. The assets under management went in the space of these two years from 665 million yuan to 114 billion. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, growth of, of more than 100 times in the space of two years, simply because they, they partnered with Ant. Listening to all these numbers, Simon, it sounds as if Ant is both huge uh, and unstoppable. Does it face significant competition and, and are regulators worried about it? There are a variety of headwinds and risks facing them. And number one, you know, you you hit the nail on the head is, is the regulatory side of things. I think it's just inevitable that when you have 
you know, this kind of a disruptive financial institution that regulators are, are going to be concerned about the risks. If you've got regulators coming in and basically trying to ensure that you will have stronger competition, there are a variety of companies in China which are, you know, looking at how Big Ant has grown uh, and they're trying to get into the fintech space. So Tencent, which is the maker of WeChat, China's most popular uh, messaging app, um, is a big contender. It's already been able to get about 40% of the mobile payments market and holding about 55%. But there's a series of other companies, uh, Meituan, which does food delivery, Pinduoduo, which does uh, e-commerce, that are trying to get in, into the space as well. So is it fair to assume that Ant's next 10 years can't be as spectacular as, it, as its first 10 years? I think that is a fair assumption, you know, for, for two reasons. So one is the competition, which I've already laid out. The second is that when, when you actually do look at the ant model, there are certain limitations that are baked into it. So, you know, first and foremost, this is a company that's focusing on small time businesses, uh, on small time re- retail consumers. There's a reason that, that big banks around the world focus their wealth management platforms on high net worth individuals. That, that's the most valuable part of the market to be in. That's not a part of the market that Ant is really going to be able to get into. Um, equally on the lending side, although they, you know, are able to analyze real time data in a way that banks can't do, you know, it's not really been through a, a truly prolonged down cycle uh, in the credit market. So if there's a systemic issue, then the kind of model that Ant has has developed has not truly been tested in that kind of a situation. So how much does this IPO matter to the rest of the world? Well, I think it matters, but because of what Ant represents, which is kind of the purest distilled example of this kind of giant fintech super app supermarket model. And I think also it's important to note that, you know, even though they've run into these global obstacles, just domestically, the the scope of what they could achieve um, still remains vast. Uh, Again, to bring it back to Lili from Invesco, uh, you know, when I spoke to her, she talked about the fact that they had recently hosted a live stream um, on there. They sort of have a mini site within the antenna. They were able to have 700,000 people tune into this live stream. I mean, that kind of access is something that's unheard of for, for fund management companies in the West. And, and so you can see why this kind of model uh, is one that really is you know, powerful and that, that others will want to try to emulate if possible. Simon, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Simon's briefing on the rise of Ant will be in the next edition of The Economist, accompanied by a broader analysis of the fintech firms hoping to emulate Ant around the world. There's also a huge amount in the current issue. From a profile of Tata Sons, the Indian conglomerate straining under pressure from all sides, to a meditation from our Bartleby columnist on the absolute need for humour at work. Subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer That's economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link's also in the episode notes on your podcast app. Next, though some companies in America are weathering the pandemic relatively successfully, others are feeling the full force of the economic storm. Agreement on further federal stimulus remains a distant prospect. On October 1st, the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives passed a pared-down bill worth $2.2 trillion, 
but this will not get past the Republican majority in the Senate. As the standoff in Congress continues, a so-called K-shaped recovery threatens up to 5 million Americans with long-term unemployment, and many small firms are on the verge of bankruptcy. We had all hoped for a V-shaped, something that would be a steep recovery, but instead what we're seeing really is two different recoveries, two tails. Suzanne Clark is president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which through its network represents more than 3 million businesses of all sizes across America. And you see it in a lot of data. If you look, for example, at businesses that are paying down extra debt right now, it's about a quarter of the population. At the same time, a quarter of the population says they can't make their debt payments. You have 16 industries reporting job gains right now and exactly 16 industries reporting job losses. So you really see the K-shaped no matter which slice of the data you look at. Let's look at federal stimulus. I mean, last week we saw Democrats rejecting uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary's 1.6 trillion proposal. We've had the president himself tweeting from hospital asking for the two parties to work together to pass new stimulus. Do you have much hope that a deal can be reached before the election? Well, I'm an optimistic person, and I think it's so important that I'd like to believe that our elected officials could come together to do what's right for our country. You know, one of the things that I think all this talk of small versus large businesses misses is that the economy, as you well know, is an ecosystem. And so the small businesses are the vendors and customers of the large businesses, right? If if in the States we're expecting 47% of job creation to come from small businesses, Imagine the impact on those people as consumers alone uh, without getting through this pandemic in a way that, that keeps them from shutting down. And so I've got to be confident that our government can get this done, but it is going to require the House and the Senate and the White House to come together and negotiate an agreement. Acting as a one-off is just not going to get it done. And how about the, the Goldilocks question? I mean, does the chamber have a view on the right size of stimulus? I mean, how much is enough to rescue the economy and keep viable businesses going and not too much so as to create a bloated overhang of zombie businesses? I think at the end of the day, it's why we've really pushed for targeted relief that's temporary. Uh, we, we were hoping for timely, you know, but we're getting further away from that as, as every day passes. We do have to worry about the long-term implications of some of this. But first things first, we've got to get through this without an entire segment of our society going bankrupt. But are you able to put a number on it to endorse a figure that the chamber could get behind? No, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give you a specific number. To be honest, this is going to take negotiation on all sides, and we're going to want to be supportive of getting it through. I see the Chamber has begun mobilising resources to support the appointment to the Supreme Court of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. To the outside, it seems a bit puzzling that the Chamber would get involved in an issue which has become so polarised on partisan lines as to whether it should happen now or after the election. Why is it so important to the Chamber to get involved now? We haven't spoken to the timing. What we've spoken to is her qualifications as a jurist. And we've long known that she was in the queue to be nominated. So we've had time to study her record as a jurist and to say that she's completely qualified. That is where we have always acted. We have supported most justices of either party when they're appointed because we believe the business community and the economy needs a fully functioning legal system. Indeed, but surely by getting involved now, you are implicitly taking a view on the timing of this as well, aren't you? I think once... 
we had a qualified jurist, we were going to come out and support them, no matter what the timing was. And so it would have been a political decision to wait. <laughs> so the, the idea of just going as soon as you know that you have confidence in the qualified jurist has always been our precedent and we stuck with it. Let's turn to the election itself, if I may. When Mr. Trump came to office in 2017, he promised to unleash the animal spirits of business, offered bosses a hotline to the Oval Office, and he has indeed slashed a lot of red tape and and cut taxes. Does the Chamber feel he's kept his promises to business? One of the reasons we never get involved in a presidential race, while we're very active in congressional races, is that we have to work with whomever's in office, right? So when we agree with an administration's policy, say here on taxes and regulations, we work really hard to advance it. And when we disagree, we really fight back. So we've had some disagreements with this administration on tariffs, for example, or on some trade issues. And we've had some real agreements with the president on things like taxes and regulations and and even some legal reform issues. So if he wins re-election, is it fair to say that the, the main change that you'd hope to see compared with his first administration is on trade policy? Yes, I think pro trade, pro immigration, and, and really, we'd like to see a real focus on infrastructure, which was a main component of President Trump's political views the first time he was elected. And we'd love to come back to some focus on infrastructure in the next term. And, and turning to his opponent, Joe Biden, the accusation made against him by President Trump is that he would be a hostage to the left of his party. He, of course, presents himself as a, as a centrist. And indeed, as, as we ourselves have argued in the current issue of The Economist, his proposals are, in terms of spending at least, relatively modest. Are you confident like us or alarmed like President Trump about his policies? Uh, I'd say we're in the middle, right? We try to never be <laughs> never be confident uh, because it keeps us from being on our toes, right? Some of the proposals that are on the table are alarming to business, and you can count on the chamber to be ready to fight them. And other proposals that are on the table, we'd have to see how they actually play out to see if we could support them. Whoever wins in November, what pro-business legislation would be top of your list to make the biggest difference to Main Street recovery? Hopefully we will have passed this next round of stimulus by then. We are, of course, always concerned about legal reform. In this case, we hear from a lot of businesses who say, here we are in a, in a pandemic with no playbook, there's no precedent, and we're trying to figure out how to reopen. We want to make sure that we're not going to be sued, that our choice isn't reopen and get sued or stay closed and go bankrupt. And so we're looking for targeted temporary relief right now. But in the long run, this country's really got to look at the somewhat out of control plaintiff's bar that keeps America from taking the risk that it needs to to continue to be successful. So watch for corporate governance, always immigration, always trade, infrastructure, legal reform, Those will always be our top priorities. The question will be whether we're on offense or defense, depending on who's in the White House, who's in the Senate, and who's in the Congress. Suzanne Clark, thanks very much. Thank you for having me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
And finally... Where's 007? No Time to Die, the latest James Bond caper, is to be Daniel Craig's swan song as the suave spy. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. Besides the spectacular stunts and the sex, the cinema industry was eagerly awaiting the punters who they hoped would flock to see the last blockbuster standing amid the cinematic carnage of 2020. If we don't do this, there will be nothing left to save. So the news that the new Bond title will now be delayed until April 21 was a blow to the already ailing industry. On Monday, the world's second largest cinema chain announced it's going into hibernation. We are now like a kind of a grocery shop that have no food to sell. Mookie Greidinger, the CEO of Cineworld, told CNBC... We are facing a situation where, in a way, it is better for the company to be closed than to be open. Cineworld, known to Americans as Regal, is preparing to shut 90% of its screens on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, the trouble at the moment is there's just nothing on. There's nothing for people to go and see. Tom Wainwright is The Economist's media editor. At the start of the pandemic, the difficulty for cinemas was persuading moviegoers that it was safe to go back to the auditorium. But the difficulty now is persuading studios to send their films for exhibition. These films have cost, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in some cases to make. And the experience of Tenet, which came out a few weeks ago, wasn't all that great. I mean, internationally, it's done okay. I think it's just recently gone above $300 million, which isn't too bad. But in America, it's really not made much at all. 40-something million at the moment, which is a small fraction of, of what a film like that would hope to make. And if you spent all that money on a film, it's easier and safer to maybe sit on it for another six months and hope that by that stage the pandemic is in check and it's safe to send your film back to the cinema. And is Cineworld gone for good or or is there a chance its theatres might reopen? Well, they say this is a temporary thing. I mean, they're not closing forever. As soon as films are released that people might want to go and see, then they'll reopen. But until then, I mean, it was already difficult for them because in some countries and in some states, uh, there were new rules about things like, you know, limiting capacity or that they couldn't open their concessions where they sell those incredibly expensive hot dogs and bags of popcorn, which make them lots of money. All of that stuff had made it harder to turn a profit. But the real killer is is the lack of films. And so I think this problem is going to last as long as the drought of new releases lasts. And why don't they stream the films first and put them out in the cinemas later on? Well, some of them are doing that. Earlier on this year, Trolls World Tour was the first example of a studio doing this. They put that out for streaming. It was a kind of one-off. You had to pay to see it. And it did okay. They seemed reasonably happy with its performance. But that film was one that had cost about $100 to make. So it wasn't a kind of super-duper, you know, tentpole, as they call them. Disney had a go at the streaming approach with Mulan, which came out just a few weeks back. It sounds as though it did okay, but Disney aren't shouting about the results that it had from that film, which suggests that perhaps it didn't do quite as well as they might have hoped. And for a film like that, which cost nearer $200 million to make, it's hard to recoup all your expenditure with just a streaming release. Really, with a a big kind of would-be blockbuster like that, you ideally want to try and get the cinematic window and then streaming further down the line. So for some types of film, I think streaming probably isn't going to be a long-term solution. And presumably those filmmakers like Disney that have their own streaming platforms 
have something of an edge. They do. I mean, Disney is very, very keen to get people interested in Disney Plus, which is its kind of would-be Netflix killer. So, so far, not a Netflix killer. They've got a bit of a pipeline problem at the moment because COVID is disrupting shooting everywhere. And so for a company like Disney, it, it does make sense in a way to divert some of these films to streaming. And they've done that with some of their other releases. There was a film called Artemis Fowl, for example, which was originally due to go to cinemas, but they decided to make it streaming only. So it helps to sort of bolster the Disney Plus offering in that sense. But again, I think they would sooner not waste a potential big hit by putting it online only if they can avoid it. In a way, this was a a trend that was happening anyway, wasn't it? There's as streaming services gained in popularity and cinema houses struggled. What does all this say about the viability of the industry in the long term? That's a, a big question that the industry's got to face. I mean, it has been in fairly steady decline. 10 or 15 years ago, the average American went to the cinema three or four times a year. And pre-pandemic, it was down to more like two or three times a year. The best way to see it really is in the ultra long-term context of the role of cinema in general. I mean, if you look back to the earliest days of cinema, that's where people obviously saw all of their video. And gradually, television has been sort of stealing away bits of the package. So first it was video news, then it was cartoons, then it was drama serials, until cinemas now are just left with the feature film. And I think what's happening now is that some sort of types of feature film are increasingly going to streaming only. Romantic comedies and the the lower budget or medium budget films. And what the cinemas are going to be left with is just the super duper expensive blockbusters where the sound effects really kind of make your seat wobble, you know. (laughs) And for anything else, you're more likely to stay at home and watch it on Netflix or, or Disney+. Plus. Around where I live, Tom, cinemas were changing their approaches, or at least some of them were before the pandemic. They were offering meals, big comfortable chair, you could get drinks brought to your seat. Uh, There were fewer people in there, it cost a bit more, but it was more of a a whole night out experience. Is, Is that just a North London trend or is that something that's spreading worldwide. (laughs) It's not just North London. No, no, that is happening everywhere. And actually, before the pandemic, lots of chains had invested in exactly that kind of stuff. So it was the kind of ultra comfy seat that reclines all the way back. And, you know, you can have food delivered to your seat and all that kind of thing in order to distinguish it from a night at home. But the trouble is now, I think there's going to be a sort of vicious circle where these companies, these cinema chains, are going to have less money to invest in precisely those kinds of upgrades. They probably are going to have to put their prices up as well. And so the risk is that their way out of this is probably to make cinema more special experience, but actually that they're going to have to cut their costs, which is going to make it you know, less of a special experience. So I think they're in real difficulty. Tom Wainwright, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a review or rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does make all the difference. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist.